Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Steve. Today we go where the podcast has never gone before. The end of a book. The end of Judges, chapters 21 and 22 this week. Okay, I say the end. Actually, we'll have at least one more episode after this. Specific to Judges, kind of a summary of the entire book. We'll recap the overall plot of the book, wrap up some of the major theological issues that the text has brought up for us. And by wrap up, of course, what that looks like is I will rehash several contentious theological issues, and then I'll sort of sheepishly shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know, here's what I think, but meh. And I'll do this without apology, because this isn't the future. Folks, the internet does not think for us. Yet. Oh, it will. It will. And we'll just call that last 30 seconds or so paranoid crazy with a microphone on a podcast. No, but look, in all seriousness, this is the part of the study um, of the book of Judges where you hopefully are better equipped to deal with some of the difficult issues that we've been talking about that I've raised for you. And it's about time for me to turn it over to you and uh, have you reach your own conclusions on some of the things that we've been talking about. So, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, let's begin our descent into the crazy that is the end of the book of Judges. You know the drill. Please return your seat backs and tray tables to their fully upright and locked positions. Dispose of any remaining service items as the attendants make one final pass through the cabin and stow any carry-ons that you may have retrieved during the flight under the seat back in front of you. Chapter 20. Remember where we left off with chapter 19. The Levite and his concubine had come to Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. They stay overnight at a man's house, And uh, during the night, men of the tribe of Benjamin come to this house wanting to rape the Levite, the guest of the house. Well, the people inside the house, instead of throwing the Levite out to the mob, throw the Levite's concubine, throw her outside, and she's gang-raped all night. The next morning, she crawls back to the door of the house. The Levite finds her there and then takes her back home. Whether she's alive or dead at this point, the text doesn't say. Probably intentionally. But the chapter ends with the Levite carving his concubine's body into multiple pieces and sending these pieces throughout Israel. And this is where we pick up chapter 20. We immediately learn that all of Israel, except for Benjamin, has assembled together. Now, I should mention that most commentators put chapters 19 through 21 together as the conclusion of the book. So it's natural that we would see the resolution of some of the literary and theological themes that have been popping up throughout the book of Judges. We would see those resolved in these last few chapters. And already we see a huge example of this. The emphasis throughout the book of Judges has been on the individual judges. Think about this. Uh, Men and a couple notable women acting more or less independently. Um, Think of Samson. Think of uh, Deborah or Jephthah. Um, Pretty much the entire book has been focused on individual judges um, or focused on a specific tribe which is acting more or less on its own. 
the entire nation of Israel doesn't seem to be rallying behind any particular judge up till, the, up till now. But what do we see now? Finally, we see all of Israel united in chapter 20. But is this a positive thing? Well, what did Yahweh command of Israel? Well, one of the things he commanded was for them to unite in order to occupy the land of Canaan. But why are they uniting in chapter 20? Well, it's going to be to punish the tribe of Benjamin, to punish and destroy one of its own tribes. This is not why Israel was supposed to unite. Okay, so next we get to verse 2, and we're told that the number of soldiers massed at this assembly of Israel is 400,000, which any serious student of, of the text would immediately recognize as preposterous. There, there is simply no way that Israel could support an army of this size at this point, or really at any point in history that I'm aware of. The Hebrew term for thousand is this word elef, and I think we've talked about that before. And elef can also sometimes be translated as a military unit. So perhaps instead of 400,000 men, we instead have 400 military units. Which, of course, is still a very large military force for this point in history, but may, may be much more believable. Our old friend, the Levite from chapter 19, now reappears. And aren't we glad to see him? And the mob wants to know his account of what happened. And verses 4 to 7 have this account, which, surprise of surprises, conspicuously leaves out how he threw the concubine to the rapist or how he made absolutely no effort to rescue her. And listen to his language. They rose up against me. They planned to kill me. They humiliated my concubine. See, he's very focused on how he has been wronged. The damage to his honor in all of this. This guy isn't exactly getting less scummy. But it does the trick. The, the people of Israel don't bother to question anyone from Benjamin about the truth of this. Um, they feel more than justified in their anger. So now, take a second and, and picture this next scene as it unfolds. It's time to get the posse together. Men from Israel, I can only assume armed, begin to walk through the territory of Benjamin. Now presumably these men would be coming from several different tribes because the tribes have united now. Judah, Ephraim, possibly the Transjordanian tribes, Manasseh maybe. So they would have different accents. They would have different mannerisms. Remember how important the, the regional accents were in chapter 12 with the people from Ephraim and those from Gibeah. Um, these men would maybe have different clothing styles. Um, but they go walking through these villages and cities demanding that the tribe of Benjamin give up the men that raped this concubine. Now, verse 13 says that the sons of Benjamin would not listen. But really, you know, I have to wonder, is this a matter of Benjamin being unwilling to deliver these men? Or did they even know which men were in fact the rapists? And why would they refuse to hand these men over? I mean, what's in it for them? Well, sadly, the text uh, doesn't say. The bottom line, of course, is that Benjamin gathers its own troops. We're told that their army is significantly less numerous than the entire Israelite army, um, 
which is understandable. Verse 18. All of Israel is gathered for war, and the people seek an oracle of God. It's something worth paying attention to here. Let me read the New American Standard Version, the NASB, of verse 18. Quote, Now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God, and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. End quote. And we notice this happen again in verse 21. The people seek an oracle of God. Uh, This word God is the Hebrew term Elohim, which I believe we've talked about uh, before. Elohim is an interesting word. It it can refer to the God of the Israelites, but it's also really just a generic term for any God, or or really any collection of gods. It's actually a plural uh, word. So it's sort of a generic stand-in for any number of ideas. Now, we do have Yahweh's actual proper name mentioned later in the verse. The NASB, uh, many English translations will often translate Yahweh as Lord, um, sometimes in all caps in the English version. But we notice the switch between the generic name of God or gods, which is Elohim, and the name of the Israelite God, Yahweh. And And Okay, I get that this is a rather technical note, and hopefully you'll bear with me on this. Um, But some people have speculated that this is a literary device, that the author is using this device to help us sense the confusion that the Israelites now have concerning their God. Are they really addressing the true God of Israel, Yahweh? Or have they confused Yahweh or, or aspects or characteristics of Yahweh with other Canaanite gods. We've already seen this throughout the book, how Canaanized Israel has become. The second issue with verse 18, which we only have time to to touch on briefly, is this site of Bethel. 1 Kings chapter 12, which of course covers events much later than Judges. But 1 Kings chapter 12, what happens at Bethel? Something very significant happens there. Well, the new king of the northern kingdom, this is after the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Samaria split off, this new king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam I, sets up two golden calves to be worshipped. One of these golden calves is at Dan, and the other is placed at Bethel to be worshipped. And in this way, Jeroboam is trying to ensure that his people will not return to Judah in the south to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem. He's afraid that they'll defect to the southern kingdom if they go back to Jerusalem to worship. Remember, we talked way back in chapter 1 of Judges about the the author um, possibly having an anti-northern, pro-southern, or pro-Judah political stance. And now here, in verse 18 of chapter 20, we have the people of Israel meeting before some god... Um, and making this horrible decision to attack Benjamin. And they're making this decision at Bethel. So again, although this is a technical note, um, what it might be showing us is is something of the period of time of authorship of this passage. It's a time where the kingdoms are split. Um, It's a time where there are sentiments, pro-northern, pro-southern, 
uh, we can see maybe some of the political leanings of the authorship. So we've talked about the authorship of Judges before and some of the possible agendas that the author might be harboring. And then notice this. Israel is defeated. Benjamin actually wins the first battle. And this is in verse 21. So the people of Israel ask Yahweh, or apparently Yahweh, again. Yahweh tells them again to go to battle. And for the second time, Israel is defeated. Which raises a troubling question. How do we reconcile that the people are asking Yahweh for guidance whether or not to attack? Yahweh tells them to go attack. And then the people are defeated. This happens twice. I mean, this should really be a troubling question for us. Why is Yahweh giving them the wrong answer? Or seemingly so? It gets a little weirder. Now the Ark of the Covenant suddenly appears in the narrative. It's the only time that the Ark appears in the book of Judges at all. And then look at verse 28. We're told that Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, is the priest that is standing before the ark inquiring of Yahweh what they should do. Which, yeah, okay, great. Except that this now forces us to completely change our concept of the chronology of the book of Judges. And what I mean is, if Judges was written chronologically from beginning to end, see, there's no possible way that Phinehas, who's only two generations removed from Moses and Aaron, there's no possible way that he he could still be alive by this point. He'd be hundreds of years old. So the sudden mention of the Ark, as well as Phinehas, seems to point to a much older story that's being recounted. And it certainly leads me to conclude that chapters 19 to 21 are happening much earlier than most of the other accounts in the book of Judges. And much like we saw from chapters 4 and 5, we might be seeing a very ancient oral history being preserved in a later document. That's what I think is going on here. So Israel follows a cultic pattern before the ark. They offer up various types of offerings, burnt offerings and peace offerings and so forth. And Israel is now presented with a new military strategy against Benjamin. Um, Their cultic sacrifices pay off, and now God has given them new direction. Um, They're now going to ambush the people of Benjamin, and while we don't have time to go into the specifics, uh, they're certainly there in the text if you'd like to read them, the ambush is remarkably similar to the ambush of the city of Ai by Joshua, and that account is found in Joshua chapter 7 and 8. The ambush is so remarkably similar, in fact, that the author clearly meant for us to draw a comparison and contrast between Ai and Benjamin. I realize you may not have Joshua chapter 7 and 8 lying there right in front of you, but I'll reiterate this. The account of the ambush of the city of Ai, which is a Canaanite city, in Joshua 7 and 8, is practically identical to this ambush that's being set up for the people of Benjamin in in Judges. Um, Again, we're meant to notice that whereas in Joshua, Israel is ambushing a Canaanite city to fulfill Yahweh's commandments 
to occupy the land. In Judges, the people are ambushing one of their own tribes. They've lost sight of their real purpose in the land and the unity they're meant to have against the Canaanites. They've lost that. Of course, the Israelites are successful um, against the tribe of Benjamin, and as we'll find out in chapter 21, um, they're a little too successful. (laughs) The beginning of chapter 21, then, we learn that the Israelites have sworn not to marry any of their daughters to Benjamin, to the men of the tribe of Benjamin, um, which practically would have condemned that tribe to die out. But now the people of Israel have come to regret this decision. And again, note the irony here. Yahweh has commanded the people of Israel not to intermarry with the Canaanites. But yet now they take an oath not to marry their own people. (laughs) And some point to this as the writer attempting to show us that Israel has again become completely Canaanized. And I agree with this. I think this is one of the central themes of Judges to show us the consequences of social, political, and religious assimilation with the people in the land, with the people of Canaan. So the people of Israel sit before Elohim, not Yahweh, and they weep. Now are they sitting before their true God, Yahweh, or are they sitting before one of the Canaanite gods, or some conglomeration of the two? Even when they identify him by name in verse 3 as Yahweh, do they any longer understand who Yahweh is? Or are they confused? Well, the people come to realize that apparently no one from the area of Jabesh-Gilead had sworn the oath to not intermarry with the tribe of Benjamin. Ah, say the people of Israel. Aha, we can get these girls from Jabesh-Gilead who didn't take the oath, to intermarry with the men of Benjamin, and then that tribe will survive. So they go nicely to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and politely ask them if they might have their daughters to give to the men of Benjamin, right? Of course not. They don't go to Jabesh-Gilead and ask this of them. In their infinite wisdom, the collective tribes of Israel decide to simply kill everyone from Jabesh-Gilead except for the women, who they will then hand off to Benjamin. They blatantly abuse the sacred ban, the the harem. Uh, This is the provision in the Israelite law that allows them to declare a complete war on another people. supposed to be the Canaanites. Well, the sacred ban, the harem, was meant to be used on the Canaanites to remove them from the land, but now it is being used on a second group of people that make up God's chosen people of Israel. It's being misused. And some people point to this blatant misuse of Israelite law as a social commentary, showing how Israelite society has become off-center and thus the institutions of law and social order are malfunctioning. So 12 military units are sent up to Jabesh Gilead with orders to kill every man. Not only that, They are to kill every woman that is not a virgin. Now, the text isn't clear how thoroughly this order is carried out. It doesn't specifically say that the men are killed. But 400 young virgins are captured and brought to the men of Benjamin. 
Apparently these soldiers were also carrying their virgin detectors, by which of course I mean to point out that it has to be difficult to pick out a virgin from a non-virgin by sight. The most obvious solution to this, of course, is that the text specifically says young virgins. So these were likely little girls below the age of maturity. Eight, nine, ten years old. So 400 little girls whose fathers, brothers, and mothers were possibly just killed before their eyes are bound and carried away into a forced marriage with a man at least double or triple her age, if not older. It's a shocking picture. But is it really hard to believe? A tribal community from thousands and thousands of years ago abducting girls from one tribe to provide for another. I don't think it's hard to believe at all. In fact, I would maintain it happens today. Or at least similar circumstances. You, um, here's an example. YouTube's homepage for today, this is July 21st, 2013, has a video from an 11-year-old girl from Yemen who recorded a video addressed to her family explaining why she's run away from home. And according to her, she ran away because her mother was preparing to marry her off. I don't know the whole story behind it, um, the veracity uh, of this account, but regardless, my, my point is that this account seems genuine and it seems like something that could have actually happened um, back in the day of Judges. I think, I think we're reading about something that stands a fair likelihood of having actually taken place. And it should give us pause to think that this kind of thing is still going on today. Well, it turns out it wasn't quite enough. There weren't quite enough girls to go around. The men of Benjamin, a majority of them still are without wives. So what now? Well, it turns out at Shiloh, there is a festival to Yahweh. So the men of Benjamin are going to go there and kidnap the girls of Shiloh. Verse 19, we see that there are very elaborate directions given for the location of Shiloh, which of course is an important cultic site throughout the Old Testament. No Israelite during the monarchy or later would have needed directions to Shiloh. Everyone would have known where this was. So why the directions? Well, it's been suggested that the end of Judges is, again, out of chronological order with the rest of the book. And in fact, what it's doing is referring to a very early time in Israel's history, when Shiloh is still solidly Canaanite. Shiloh is still a Canaanite city at this point. The Israelites may not have yet moved north into that territory. So they would need directions. How do we get there? Well, the men of Benjamin, who are still needing wives, go to Shiloh and they hide in the bushes. These must have been some thick bushes. I don't know what type they might have been, but the girls come out dancing, um, likely as part of a, a cultic ritual, and the men jump out of the bushes and capture their wife-to-be. Now this plot line, um, this hiding in the bushes, the dancing girls, the kidnapping of the girls to snag a wife, um, all of these plot points are very reminiscent of a multitude of other mythological or historical accounts. 
it's, it's a very familiar story, and it crosses um, time, it, it crosses culture. Um, there is a tale which has come to be known as the Rape of the Sabine Women. Uh, dates to around 750 BC, which of course would be a little after the, the, the time of the judges. Uh, but it's, a Ro- it's actually a Roman legend. Uh, during the time of the emperors and, and during the time of the Republic, um, this legend was well known and was often recited. Very similar plot points to this, um, this narrative here in Judges. There are also Norse or Nordic um, tales, uh, Hindu versions of almost the exact same story. It, it transcends time. It, it transcends culture and, and ge- geography. Now, either this happened a lot in antiquity, which, hey, maybe it did, or this plot line is being intentionally reused and recycled for some reason. I wish we had time to delve into it. Um, it's kind of a topic all to itself, but why do we see this exact same plot line in a variety of cultures from across centuries of written prose. I don't know. But it's here in your Hebrew Bible. It's here in the Old Testament. And how does the story end? Quote, In those days Israel had no king. Every person did what was right in his own eyes. End quote. This ending, which should be very familiar to us by now, is meant as a contrast to Joshua. The book of Judges depends upon the knowledge of Joshua. It's assuming a knowledge of Joshua. Remember, at the end of Joshua, the people renew their covenant with God and they return to their territories. They return to their land. But at the end of Judges, the tribes are doing their own thing. And they're isolated from one another, except when they come together to do evil. And as I often do, I will briefly quote the scholar um, Trent Butler, who has written a commentary on Judges, this is what he has to say about the end of Judges. Quote, These stories are not told to amuse an audience or to laud a hero. If any narratives in the Hebrew Bible intend to raise the level of social consciousness and decry the present military, ethical, and moral situation in Israel, then these are the stories. Stories in which, in many ways, with more power to transform than the great prophetic sermons. End quote. So, what are we left with? Forced marriages for little girls, Yahweh, the God of Israel, possibly giving wrong answers to prayer, killings, rapes, abductions. But it, look, it's supposed to be messy. The end of Judges is messy to prove a point that things are falling apart all around the people of Israel because they no longer know who their God is or what he's asked them to do. They have no central leadership. It's every man for himself, and society is breaking down as a result. The personal takeaway for me from these two chapters is this. I shouldn't expect to hear God clearly when I've forgotten who he is. When there are significant parts of my life that aren't lining up with God's will, God's voice can get muddled and obscured, and I might start hearing what I want to hear instead of what God is actually saying. Uh, These chapters convict me to 
come to God's word intent on learning more about who he is. They convict me to wrestle with his character, that understanding who God is is more than just an intellectual exercise, but actually can change the course of my life for good or bad. And there are, of course, bigger takeaways, um, of which we'll talk about next time. Judges is really about what happens to a society when too many compromises are made and the people are left to their own devices without leadership centered on the well-being of that society. So I'll hope that uh, you'll join us as we talk through those things. But until then, shalom. Shalom.